welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. You may know that I recently released a new book called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, curated from our first 100 or so interviews, where I share a different insight for each of our first 30 or so guests. People like Kim Scott, General Stanley McChrystal, Seth Godin, Liz Wiseman, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and others would love to have you pick up a copy as well in the hopes that also today's guest might serve as a master mentor in volume two, three, or four from HarperCollins. Our guest today is the author of the newly released book, Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail. Sukinder Singh Cassidy, welcome today to On Leadership. Well, thank you so much for having me, Scott. I'm super excited to be here. Today actually is um, a very special interview because the timing could not be perfect, right? As all of us are in some kind of hopefully post-pandemic flux in some areas of the world, perhaps not as post as we hope they can be. We're going to have a great conversation today. I'm talking about risk in life, risk in our careers, and how do you kind of calibrate that. Let's take a moment, Sue, and talk a bit about your history. You, of course, have had a phenomenal ride in, if you will, corporate America. And your book today, Choose Possibility, is really sort of a, um, a contagious positivity influencer. It's like a, um, it's an igniter of what could be. Before we talk about the contents of the book, would you take our listeners and viewers on a bit of a recap of your own career and what insights culminated in you writing this book? Sure. Well, I mean, if you think, think about my career, uh, you know, I've long felt that we needed to write a book about risk because so many people give me credit for my career successes without really kind of looking at the nitty gritty of how it all unfolded. And that nitty gritty is, in fact, the process of choosing possibility and taking risks. And it has many more underlying failures than people realize in order to accumulate more kind of uh, collective success. And so, you know, when I look back on my own journey, which of course hopefully is not done, I really believe it sort of encompassed two or three big chapters. Number one, I would have been three times over an entrepreneur and a starter of companies. So one would call that large risk taking. Um, I've certainly had a second chapter, and this is not in any chronological order, of helping other people build and scale companies, some very small, one that got acquired by Amazon. Um, I was early on at Google and got to help Google build, you know, from kind of just pre-IPO into, you know, 2009. And then, of course, this third chapter of being sort of a CEO and leader uh, in my own right and having sort of the ultimate accountability for, for running a company. But what's the through line in all of that is, you know, I've continued to basically take what I think of as increasingly calculated risks, some of which worked out and some which didn't, but which on balance had a compounding benefit on my career. And I think I really wrote the book because I wish that everybody understood that risk is not really what you think it is. It's not the myths that you hear about from Silicon Valley and other places. It's really a practice and a practice that's accessible to just about anybody. Sue, my friend Rachel Hollis once said to me that you know most people don't fear failure they fear having other people watch you fail. What are mm -hmm. the connections between sort of risk and, and fear and failure and what Rachel said around, you know, how important kind of the, you know, the social mirror, the public perception of the types of risks we take play in our decision-making? Well, first of all, I think she's exceptionally insightful. In the book, I call that ego risk. I say that when we face our fears, we really have, generally speaking, three big risks of things that won't work out. The biggest and maybe perhaps the biggest inhibitor of, of 
kind of taking a risk or making a new choice is that what she calls ego risk and what I call sort of the risk of how others see you and how you as a result might see yourself, you know, like the harm to your self image as an example. The second type of risk is financial risk. And that's pretty well understood. People understand that there's a financial trade off to any decision. And the third is personal risk, right? And we often in our careers don't want to acknowledge that we might not want to make a choice because it really can do a lot of harm to our personal lives. And I think Let's just acknowledge that COVID gave everybody and you know empathy for each other's personal lives as we like witness them unfold on screen. So maybe of the latter two risks, they're easier to understand. But to your point, I think this fear of what others think of us is, you know, we can say it's not a valid fear. I think it is a valid fear if it stops us from behaving. And so the, you know, the thing I note in the book that I think is so important if you want to sort of conquer that ego risk is to understand that at the end of the day, on any choice. It's not a singular choice that will determine your failure or success at any large endeavor. It's often multiple choices. And so you may fear what people think of you after you make the first choice. But my point to most people is like, think through your choices after the choice. And once you realize that you have five or six or seven more moves, even when you think you're making a singular choice, there is still a plan to recover. Hopefully it helps us tackle that fear as well. So build on that concept, you write about this idea of the myth of the single choice. I think it's a compelling concept and lens through which to look at our decisions. Uh, expand on that. Sure, sure. So this idea that we live and die by a single choice is I think what keeps people from actually taking more risk. And you know, if you think about the kind of classic hero's journey that we see in movies, or quite frankly, even the media, and the, the highlights we see on Instagram of somebody's journey to success or the story we see written about someone, you know, sending the first, you know, rocket ship to the moon or to Mars. What we often celebrate is what would seem like these big, bold choices as if it was the only choice that the person in question made. And so when you kind of look at the world through that lens, we tend to, to, to mystify this idea of there's a single choice and, you know, it's the determinant between success and failure. When, you know, what I posit, and of course, my experience, and I'm sure the experience of many people you know, is if you look under the covers, that first choice was simply getting into motion and getting feedback. And it's the result of many, many choices, you know, that make or break, let's call it a single large reward or even the evolution of our careers. And so we tend to not look below the hero's journey and understand what's really going on. We only kind of celebrate the peaks of other people and thus in our own heads, we think that they must only have made a single big choice rather than seeing all the sequences of choices it, look, it, it took to unlock a success. And so I believe that that is the single critical myth that keeps most people from acting because when you believe that something is, you know, is so perfect and so hard at the same time, you, you, you think if I don't get it right, I better not move at all. Well, I feel like if you knew you had a hundred choices and the, and the first move is simply the first move, you have a lot more freedom to act actually. So you also talk about the myth of perfect planning. Would mm -hmm. you expand on that? Sure. I think it's a very associated myth, right? It's, it's, it's interesting because I think what we find in the research is humans in general don't really like uncertainty. So we somehow think that we can plan away the risk in any situation. And by the way, I'm the first one to suggest that we do have plans and that we are calculated. But if you believe a plan is a surrogate for action, here's what happens. You plan, you plan some more, you plan some more, you identify all the steps you're going to take in infinite detail. And by the way, they're all to the upside, right? They're like, this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, as if 
the entirety of how something turns out is within your control. So planning makes you feel more certain. But in, in irony and ironically, the more you over plan, the more you distance yourself and spend time sort of not actually in action getting a feedback loop that should inform the next version of your plan, you sort of get attached to this idea that I have to take 10 perfect steps and if I fall off anywhere along the way, I'm doomed. But the world, as you know, is far less like land and it's far more like standing on the deck of a ship, right? Where you may want everything to stay kind of completely still, but guess what? You're on water and that ship deck is always moving. So it is in real life. Like the minute you put a plan into action, of course, there are like many variables and conditions around you. So I often think that when people spend time over planning, they're planning for some perfect route, which doesn't really exist. But what does exist is create a simple plan, get into action, and then start adjusting your moves, right? With how the ship happens to be moving on a wave or an ocean at a time. And so the water's moving and, and you need to keep moving with it. And so what you really want is an evolving plan that's informed by the actions you keep taking and can unfold over time. And that's one that, quite frankly, mirrors how the real world works with regard to risk anyway. Yeah, that was nicely said. I think uh, that brought to mind, next to my parents, I think Seth Godin has probably mm -hmm. had the biggest impact on my thinking, my career, my self-awareness, anybody else in my 53 years in the world. And of the many insights that Seth has taught me in both public and in private settings is um, kind of knowing the difference between being reckless and being fearless. And I blog mm -hmm. about this a lot because I don't know that even at the age of 53, as the parent of three young boys, as you know, the recipient of a, a great career myself, that I always know the difference between when I'm being fearless and perhaps when I'm being reckless. And as we're faced mm -hmm. with risk and, and failure and fears, any insight you would add on the concept of when perhaps in your own career, which by the way, the book isn't a memoir, but the, your own career was a bit of a red thread throughout it. Mm -hmm. What would you say about knowing when we're taking risks or we're, we're thriving in the midst of maybe um, fearlessness or even recklessness? Well, I think you hit this magical kind of connotation, right? People think, remember that myth of the single choice. People think it's like no risk or big risk. And so when you're in, you're in that kind of binary equation, you actually may feel far more cornered and likely to be reckless. Like you take the thing that comes along because you want to get out of a difficult situation, you know, or you think it has to be a mighty leap. So you try something without ever having, you know, honestly taken into any account of the variables that are going on around you. So you're right. I'm not a fan of being reckless. I am a fan of being fearless. And actually, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say fearless. I would say I would say fear attuned in managing our fears because I think we never entirely kill them. <laughs> and quite frankly, our job is just to shrink them enough to be able to get into action, as I say, to really let, you know, get our fear of failure below our FOMO, our fear of missing out. So I think, I think this idea of recklessness is one of the reasons that sort of makes risk-taking seem so risky to people because they assume that it must be a re reckless risk in order to be a worthwhile risk. And I think our job is to train people to be calculated choosers, to be people who are like can take in inputs and try and make the best decision they can that is about being smart and attuned to the things that are good risks and the things that are maybe more challenging risks to take in your own life. And then to get into action, to actually choose and live with the results and become smarter and smarter as we go. And I think in my own career, look, I've actually had both. Um, I start the book off talking about actually one of the, or you can call it reckless, one of the more like really unthoughtful risks I ever took, you know, and ironically, working my way out of a thought, like a thoughtless risk I took 
actually taught me a lot about failure and how to recover even when we make a reckless take a reckless risk. So there's learning even in reckless risks because when we recover, we actually gain agility and confidence even if we'd wish we'd sort of been better at choosing or smarter about choosing or more thoughtful. And then of course, most of the time we want to wake up and have the tools in which to make smart decisions, but to make decisions and get into motion. And I hope the book kind of provides for both, which is when you find yourself contending with a reckless decision, what are your paths to recovery? And how do you become smarter you know, in your risk-taking over time so that over the course of your career, you can really harness the benefits and have an outsized amount of impact and success. So let's talk about cufflinks for women. One of the stories in your book really resonated with me because much along your career journey, after about 20 years of my own corporate career, I launched a little coin charm bracelet business, kind of like customized coins from countries around the world. You could make wow. a bracelet. And it was just like, it unleashed my creativity, my passion. I lost $100,000. But when I say that, I, I don't regret a single penny because the confidence and the focus and the entrepreneurial spirit it ignited in me was priceless. Mm -hmm. And I really resonate with your story. Would you kind of recreate that story? And what are the lessons that it taught you and it still, um, you still take, take with it? Because I'll bet you everyone has their version of cufflinks mm -hmm. for women. They probably do. So um, thank you for pulling that story from the book. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. So uh, as I say to people, I grew up, um, you know, the daughter of two doctors and my father was always telling me to work for myself. Um, and I sort of listened to that message, but I didn't really take it in. And I went off to college or university in Canada, as we call it, we don't call it college. And I went to an undergraduate business school and I was determined to be a corporate executive. I was determined to like be a large executive and have impact. And so I got on this classic uh, you know, notion in my head that I need to become an investment banker. And I became one and I worked on Wall Street and then I was sent to London. But by the time I was 25 or 26 and working away in London, you know, slaving away nights, creating pitch books and so on, I really kind of came back this notion that I wanted to kind of be an entrepreneur like my father. And so I lay on like lay on my stomach, you know, in our living room with my with my female um, roommate, who was also an investment banker. And we just were brainstorming ideas for businesses. And one of the ideas I had was like, God, I wear these terrible suits to work every day. They're so boring. You know, why are there no cufflinks for women? I mean, keep in mind, everyone who's listening to this, like this is 1995, <laughs> 1994, 1995. And so I was like, well, I should, you know, my father had a cufflink. I literally found um, a fabricator and took in a cufflink and had them make a sample that I could then stuff with like different female fabrics. I literally got a mold for cufflink. And then I went to a fabric store and I bought all of these different patterns and started putting these very beautiful patterns inside of this like gold fabricated cufflink to create like feminine cufflinks and I was convinced I had you know the idea of all time like many of us do um, my sister helped me pick fabrics you know sort of a family affair but then I stalled I had these I had these you know these things cufflinks that I carried around in a bag by the way for the next 15 years of my career but I didn't know how to market it I didn't know how to create a website and so I just stopped right but it was my first little taste of attempting entrepreneurship and to your point the lesson that was so instrumental for me and that was just makership. And I'm sure, Scott, you can resonate with the same thing, right? We tend to think like, just like we think about risk taking as large, we think of entrepreneurship as like inordinately large, right? Like, God, I want to start a company. And what you realize is entrepreneurship, like any other risk, is about taking a micro action to create something. And so I took a series of micro actions. And although I stalled, like it made entrepreneurship very accessible to me. Like, 
I was impressed that I manufactured a product and then I couldn't go any further. But of course that informed my own desires to be an entrepreneur. Um, less than a year later, about a year later, I moved to Silicon Valley, I quit my job and I wanted to just be around entrepreneurs so I could learn how it was done. But I tell you that tiny lesson in makership and that makerships can start with the smallest inkling of something was really what I took away from that, like, you know, make your own cufflinks experience. And as I said, it was a pretty seminal lesson for me that that choice making can be the smallest when we lean towards possibility. You don't need to presume every choice is a large choice that needs to work in order for you to be a maker or a risk taker. Let's take that a step further. Hypothetically, let's talk about micro actions. Everybody listening, uh, watching us has their version of female cufflinks that they're carrying around in a bag to quote you 15 years later, kind of as inspiration. And so let's just say someone's in their 30s, they have a corporate career, and say they've got a passion around flowers, flower arranging, <laughs> hypothetically. And let's just say they're so excited about it, they buy a truck. They buy like a van and they're ready to remodel it and go on the road. And of course, like all of us, they get stalled, right? The security of their corporate job, the risk that might take. Well, if I do this, I'm responsible for that. The strong ones always, you know, feel like the pressure is on them. What advice would you give to someone that is balancing between the corporate job and the passion and the joy that the flower making brings them and they have this truck? What are some micro actions that you think metaphorically and literally people could take to move that dream forward? What, what, are, what are the stall points, so to speak? Well, first of all, if the person in question we're talking about, if they bought a truck, they already made a rather big choice when I might've started right, smaller, but right, I'm impressed, right. but I'm impressed, right? So they take a big leap and then they get afraid. So I'm like, okay, you've now made a big choice. So now I'd say, what are the little risks you can take to validate your big choice? In the case of, in the case of buying a van, you might say, hey, maybe your littlest choice is before you even get that van on the road and drive it anywhere. Like maybe that's not where you start. Maybe you take those flowers and maybe you create a couple of arrangements and put them on an Etsy store, like yeah. literally, and see if anybody would want to buy a handmade arrangement at home, right? Because you can do that in the evenings. By the way, you don't need to drive your truck yet. You can just hold that for a moment and not incur the expense. But a micro choice is simply like, maybe you're going to start arranging flowers on the side as a side hustle on the weekend. Maybe you're going to create arrangements and give them away just to see what types of things people like. And so I think these are all examples of micro actions you can take before the day you quit your job and drive a truck around. Then I would say, what are the second things you could do? Well, you might, you might just get online and again on a weekend and figure out, is there a flower truck? If there's not, if there is a flower truck, like where do they go? You know, how many, how many hours of a day is that truck driving around versus staying in the same place? By the way, if there's not a flower truck, is there a place that trucks go that you could also park? Is it, you know, do people buy flowers when they buy food? Is it good to be parked beside a food truck? Or might people buy flowers when they go to a market and you want to drive your truck to a weekend market and start and start uh, start putting out your arrangements that you've been testing on Etsy or for your friends there. So I always think you have to, as you know, chunk these things out. And I think it's interesting to me because the, the example you gave is exactly, I think, what happens for people. It's no risk or a big risk. So in this case, somebody's like, I bought a truck. Now what do I do? I love it because it's a forcing function to get into those little actions. The reality is, you know, our friend could have started on their journey without ever buying a truck yet, right? But because they had pressure to make a big choice, they bought the truck. I'd be like, okay, how about you go get, make micro choices, start making arrangements, you know, figure out how to sell them statically, and then pivot your way into the truck. But if you have the truck, you just go the other direction. It's all the same thing, right? Like, if you happen to make a big choice, your job is to then make little choices that unlock the value of your big choice. If you're afraid to make a big choice, make the little choices first, right? Just keep getting more incremental data. 
And I think to your point, the question of whether or not your flower business deserves to be your day job comes to like, are you getting joy in the evenings by doing it when you make the temp one? Are you tired? Are you irritated? Are you bored? You know, so forcing yourself to do something as a practice is a really great way to learn whether or not your passion actually should be your job, which is a whole other topic, right? But you only know that if you keep rinsing and repeating. And so I think those are all the micro actions you could take between now and your one day flower business. So beautifully said, you know, right now there's a lot of popularity around the phrase, the great resignation, right? Kind of the yes. built on the idea of the great recession, depression. I know it's something north of 50% of people now are pulled that they're actively thinking about or searching for a new job. I, I read, I think it was, I don't know if it was Dave Ramsey or someone once said recently that a salary is the pay a company gives you to give up your dreams, which that might be a bit draconian. But what would it you is, say right really. now to individuals that are thinking about a side hustle or thinking about taking some risk? Why is now a good time? Let's just say that it's, you know, early fall 2021. Is this a good time or a bad time? Or is there a time that's universal, unique to people maybe taking calibrated risks, micro actions, as you call them, towards what might become their vocation and their avocation? Yeah, well, first of all, let's talk about on an absolute basis. I think what your question is, is fall 2021 a good time to take risk with regard to your career? And then the relative question, if not, when do you take risk? Well, first of all, I think one of the reasons fall 2021 is, reson is resonating with people as a time to think about new choices is because A, people just lived through COVID and, and learned a tremendous amount about their own agility and resiliency and ability to actually make rapid choices in the face of harm, right? So people learned something about their own agility in this period. Number two, they learned a lot more about the flexibility that can come with work. And one of the ideal times to think about new choices is because all the companies that we work for are also recalibr recalibrating what it means to offer flexibility at work, right? So I think one of the reasons this is a great time is because you are kind of making your own calibrations when your companies are too. So this might be the ideal time to ask, to suggest, to think about a career shift or a location shift, because the same thing that is happening with you is happening at the company level. So at least there is receptivity to think about flexibility in how you work or where you work. So I think that's why today is an opportune time. We've learned something about ourselves and our agility and companies are already dealing with, uh, you know, capabilities around flexibility, remote work, that allow people for the first time to surface some of these issues if they want to stay, if they want to go, why they would stay or go in a way that companies will be far more empathetic to than has mm -hmm. previously happened. Now, on a relative basis, you say, is there a good or bad time to take risk? I think it's not about whether or not there's a good or bad time. I think there's what's your reason to take risk and what, what are the factors that make something a smart risk? So as an example, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say, gosh, you should always take risk in your 20s. It's not like that. I think what I would say is, okay, what are the reasons you want to take risk? I often find that they fall into one of four categories. To learn, to discover, which people don't think is risk-taking, but it is. Long before you know you make a big choice, you can make little choices to discover. Think about that flower example, all the little choices one could make in order to discover their vocation or passion. To achieve an ambition, we're all used to that version of risk. And then the last one is the one that happened to us in COVID. We took risk, quite frankly, in order to avoid harm. Like we literally took risk in order to avoid more risk. <laughs> so these are four conditions under which you should look for opportunities to take risk and they're not time bound. And then if you think about when's the ideal time to take a risk, I always say to people, smart, uh, smart risk taking involves not just what's happening with you and your ambitions, 
but what is happening in the environment that gives you tailwinds or headwinds. So remember that com comment I just had about one, this might be one of the ideal times to act for, ask for work flexibility, because guess what? The tailwinds of COVID mean that every single company is thinking about it. So it makes it an ideal time to think of, you know, to ask a question or offer a solution or to make a new choice in this direction. So when there are tailwinds to a decision that you're contemplating, i.e. you can put yourself in the path of momentum, you have more likelihood that maybe your choices will be successful. So I don't think the when is like when at what age. I think it's when, meaning what are the reasons you want to take risk now? And then number two, what are the things in the environment that might propel you to say, this is the time to take the risk? And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, coming all the way back, why people are taking a risk and call it the great resignation or asking for different things at work. Because quite frankly, the COVID tailwind has taught everybody that workplaces need to be far more flexible in order to retain talent. Amen to that. You phrased a somewhat awkward term called professional priests. Riff mm -hmm. on that a little bit. Why are professional priests so important in everybody's lives? Well, we talk about this idea of being a smart risk taker, right? If you want to be not a reckless risk taker, but a thoughtful risk taker, but still one who's able to make a decision, we're all used to on, you know, big decisions, consulting with people who to offer us advice. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody in the world who doesn't go ask somebody else what they think. But the challenge is we often ask people who may or may not be a vested in the outcome or b understand our professional goals or c understand our professional strengths so when people go to their spouses as an example and say i'm making this big career decision and we kind of go back and forth with our spouse that is some level of utility because they know us well personally but quite frankly they don't have a context on all our professional right, right. capacity or decisions they have never seen us in action and quite frankly they have a vested interest in the outcome like i'm not sure our spouses want to be our professional priests i know my spouse would rather say like hey here's my opinion can we you know like i've given it to you like i also want us to you know focus on our personal lives so i think professional priests are those people in our network often in our professional network maybe a friend who understand our gifts you know, have a unique or, you know, I'd say knowledgeable perspective on the choices we're considering and are unbiased with regard to which choice we make other than their care for our welfare, right? Like they would like to see us happy or fulfilled, but they have no skin in the game. And I've often used those professional priests. In my case, I have an executive coach, but I also have women who have gone through similar kind of parts of their and times in their career at the same arc I've been on. And they were my professional priests too when I went to them and was like, you know, what would you do in this situation? Because they were similarly situated career-wise, in some cases, similarly situated family-wise. And they were my professional priests as much as my coach. So Kendra, you're on a quest for impact. What do you hope mm -hmm. people take away from reading, listening, sharing your book, perhaps with uh, book clubs, members of their teams? Why did you write it? What do you hope people take away from Choose Possibility? Um, number one, I hope the, the number one thing they take away is that risk-taking is not for just the risk riskiest people in the world, it's for all of us. That risk-taking comes down to a series of small and big choices, you know, they cumulatively unlock impact, but in order to get their benefits, you have to be willing to choose continuously. So boxing yourself into a single choice, it's hard to build a compelling, like long-term trajectory if you think that one choice is what, is what unlocks a reward. But I think if you find it freeing to think about, like, it doesn't have to be big. It can be many little choices. And really, I can unlock the benefits as long as I'm willing to keep choosing, learning, get the compounding benefits and sort of make a smarter choice, you know, with the benefit of, honestly, practice and information. I'm going to unlock the, you know, the success I seek or the impact I seek as long as I'm willing to be in a continuous 
in a continuous kind of choosing cycle, which quite frankly, for someone like me, that's freeing. If you think I, if I think I have to make a mighty choice and be perfect, you know, I might never go. But what I've really learned is I always have one more choice I can make. And that's a pretty freeing place to be when you think about your ability to create long-term impact. Eric Schmidt, former CEO and chairman of Google, calls you one of Silicon Valley's most respected leaders. Sukinder Singh Cassidy, your book is Choose Possibility, Take Risks, and Thrive Even When You Fail. Thank you for joining us today. Great success to you on your quest with impact. Great interview. And I hope that my colleague, who's now starting to take micro actions on her flower business, listens mm -hmm. today and takes great benefit from you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me. Hey, and thanks for joining us. And we'll see you back here next week for another inspiring interview and conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.